You're listening to The Elephant Test. We're dedicated to the B2B marketing community and here to explore the practices, thoughts, and ideas of effective B2B marketing executives. Hi, this is Sky Cassidy and Alicia Garvalia. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining us uh, for The Elephant Test today. Uh, we're joined by Mike Moran. He's an author, professional speaker, and uh, consultant on digital marketing, uh, content marketing, search, social media, and web and text analytics uh, technology. Uh, Mike, I know you're in so many things. Is there anything else you want to specifically throw out there uh, on, on yourself? No, that's good. I mean, uh, I mostly work with uh, really large companies, almost all B2B companies. And, uh, you know, all of the things that we do are pretty much under the umbrella of content marketing, whether it's search or social. And uh, we tend to take on projects where we're using um, analytics, uh, especially text analytics and machine learning to help uh, clients understand better how to improve their content marketing. So that's really what our sweet spot is. Nice. And, and one of the things I have, I have here is that I didn't mention in that intro is AI, artificial intelligence. You do a lot of work in artificial intelligence. Is that, would that be correct? That's true. Um, the machine learning, which I mentioned earlier, is a type of artificial intelligence. A lot of people consider text analytics to be a type of artificial intelligence. Uh, I've been working um, on and off in AI that uh, intersects with marketing since the the late 80s. So I've seen an awful lot of changes. And uh, interestingly, after 30 years, it looks like I'm an overnight success because everybody's talking about AI and marketing now. That's, that's awesome. Also, I mean, people hear AI and they get a little scared in marketing. And does there any uh, is there any scary things like in the you know general Terminator fear uh, of the machine uh, <laughs> of the robot AI? Are we gonna be, have a a Vicky coming up soon? Well, I, th- yeah. I think I, that, uh, I think whether you're scared or not is mostly a personality test. Um, you know, I hear people <laughs> talk about how you're going to see all sorts of uh, computer processes take over all our jobs and i hear other people talking about how we only have to work 10 hours a week and have a life of leisure and the truth is they're both saying the same thing they just have a different attitude about what it means awesome uh, so i want to get more into the ai stuff uh in a little bit but first can we go into kind of um your history in marketing how you got into bnb marketing uh, b2b marketing where you came from that kind of stuff sure originally I was uh, in technology. I was kind of self-taught in technology. I was working nights at IBM and had a pretty boring job and ended up learning programming and uh, by happenstance happened to invent a technology that they were trying to invent in IBM research. It was the first time I was working in text analytics where we were working on a electronic book program. Um, it was the first commercial ebook um, way before Adobe Acrobat. And uh, it's something IBM delivered as a product. And I think it might still even be um, available for clients to look at things like technical manuals. And so, um, so after a fairly long career in technology, I ended up uh, at IBM.com in the uh, late 90s. And uh, for eight years, I worked at IBM.com. And what I found was that nobody really knew how to do what they called then internet marketing. And so I ended up going back to take some courses and learn a lot about direct marketing. And I ended up then in kind of a hybrid job where I was doing technology, but I was also helping uh, manage a lot of IBM.com's marketing initiatives. I introduced uh, search marketing at IBM.com. I was working on uh, website search, which is still a vastly underused technique of marketing. I managed big parts of IBM's global web presence and uh, was there for the very beginnings of social media. And so I ended up doing a lot of marketing work in addition to the technology work. And in I was eventually named a distinguished engineer at IBM, which uh, is an executive level technical position. And in 2008, I retired from IBM and I started my own 
consulting firm, uh, the Mike Moran Group, but I also do a lot of work for startup companies. So I'm the senior strategist at Conversion, which is a social media analytics company. Um, and I've been there since 2008. Um, I also have the same role at Solo Segment, which is a, a AI content marketing company that focuses on website search and uh, content quality analytics. So there's a number of uh, startups that I help uh, help do work with. And, uh, and, and again, I work with uh, a lot of large, mostly B2B companies to help with their uh, content marketing. Awesome. I have a question about content marketing. Uh, so something as I've been producing content and also reading a lot of content that comes through my email or, you know, on LinkedIn or through even getting marketed to on Facebook, things like that, um, all B2B. I'm interested, how do you ensure quality? Because I think one of the things that happens with content marketing is that we as marketers try to get out as much as possible that kind of often can sometimes turn into like clickbait and things like that. And, and how do you make sure that um, that's not happening? That it that it's real content that your that the customer demographic that you're trying to reach it really appreciates that quality, and it doesn't just turn into like I said, essentially fluff. Like, I guess, yeah, fluff. Say, I don't yeah. know. I mean, even just I feel like half the time when I'm reading this stuff, I'm not actually sure it's coming from experts. I'm thinking like, okay, how much do you guys actually really know about this? Things like that. Yeah, I think that. Uh What's happened over the last few years is that we went from people not believing content marketing was worth their time to kind of being sold a bill of goods that said that content marketing is basically the only thing you can do and you have to have more and more content or else you're falling behind your competitors and and people and they would say but it has to be really high quality and they would just kind of throw that out as though that was somehow self-evident of what quality means and so the truth is that you can't really win the content marketing game by volume a colleague of mine who's actually an advisor to solo segment mark schaefer the best-selling author he actually coined a term that I think is really good called content shock. <laughs> what, what he's basically saying is that we're at this point turning out so much content that none of our customers have enough time to consume it all because we can make as much content as we want, but nobody's making any more time. <laughs> and so the one of the ways to understand whether something is high quality is whether it's actually working. Is it being found? Is it being consumed? Is it prompting action? And so you can look at those kinds of extrinsic metrics, those kinds of activity metrics that tell you whether something's being shared, whether it's being linked to. So all these things that are kind of the way that Google or Facebook would decide that something's of high quality. Um, one of the problems with that, though, is that it's very hard to create content and be sure that you know what kind of metrics it's going to get. Because the only thing you can measure in the beginning is the intrinsic metrics. You can measure things like how long is it? What grade level is it at? Is it using branded terms or not? There's a whole bunch of things that you can measure. And so the real game here, and it's one of the things that I, I work on with Solo Segment, um, is to use AI to try to bridge that gap between the intrinsic qualities of the content, the things that you can measure, the things you can tell um, content creators to try to do, and the extrinsic measures, so what the outcomes are. So the extrinsic measures, like is it being shared? Is it leading to conversion? Is it being found in Google? Is it being linked to? So all those kinds of things that you can look at, those are the things you want to happen. And so if you can then do a correlation using AI that can tell you which characteristics of the content are the things you actually want to focus on, now you suddenly have a feedback loop that tells you which content really is high quality. Does it, it seems to me that content is kind of like the way advertising used to be, except for there's a lot more, there's a lot better measurements in the after the fact space. I mean, people are throwing a lot of attention into it. There is a lot of just clickbait type stuff out there. And some, some companies seem to just swamp the market and then look at, you know, hey, if we had sales, it must have been due to our advertising. It must have been due to our content marketing. But I, I guess now with content, the big difference is there are the after the fact measurements that can be done um, so much better. You can attribute stuff so much better than you used to be able to. 
Yeah, that's true. The um, I mean, one of the objections in the beginning for content marketing was that people would say, oh, look, now you're telling me I have to spend all this money creating content and it has to be high quality content. So it's not like cheap content I'm creating. I have to really invest and really spend money creating high quality content. And then only some of my customers are going to see it and only some of them are actually going to buy. Why is that such a good model? And what I used to say to them is, is that that's not actually unique to content marketing. That's actually the advertising model too. You have to create really good advertising. It has to be high quality to kind of break through the clutter. And only some of your prospective markets going to see the advertising and only a fraction of those are actually going to act on it. The model around content marketing and advertising are exactly the same. What's different is where you spend the money. With advertising, you can usually get away fairly light in terms of creating the assets. Although it's expensive to create ads, it's usually a lot cheaper than creating uh, full-blown content marketing campaigns. But the problem with the ads is you have to pay for distribution. And with content marketing, if you do it right, you have to pay a lot less for distribution. And so it's really the same type of model. But as you say, things that are online, whether they're advertising or content marketing, can be measured a lot better. And so you can use those measurements to both determine what quality is and to understand what kinds of things are working and what kinds of things are not working so you can do a better job the next time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Can you tell me – actually, before we jump into AI – um, I think there is some misnomer about uh, what AI is, or at least I know that there's a couple different types of AI. Could you give us some definitions? And then I have an, another question about that. Sure. Um, what I find, honestly, is is somebody who's been working in this field for a really long time, I find that there's kind of all sorts of information out there that almost seems designed to confuse people, um, to try to like tell them all these different types of artificial intelligence and all these different techniques. And I have to tell you, marketers don't need to know any of that stuff. It's really not important <laughs> any more than they need to understand, you know, what Google's algorithm is. You know, it's just not important. What's important is that you understand what you should do in order to get your content to work better. That's what's really important. And so um, there's a lot of different ways of using AI. But to me, the most important thing that marketers need to understand about it is that the difference between AI and any other kind of software is that um, with AI, it improves as you keep using it. It actually uses the data to make itself smarter. So with a traditional piece of software, it does what you tell it to do. And if you give it the same input over and over and over again, it'll give you exactly the same output. And that's very valuable. It's very important to know that whatever you tell it to do, it's going to do. And there's lots of problems that we've been solving for 50 years in computers for which that's the right way to do it. What AI does is instead of saying, do what I tell you to do, what you're really asking it to do is to optimize for a certain outcome. So you're basically telling it, try to keep improving this particular thing until we kind of reach nirvana. And so here's here's a way of thinking about the difference between traditional software and AI. If you think about something, a program like Photoshop, Photoshop has lots of different dials and levers and all sorts of things that you can press that kind of make your photograph look better. But you need to have a certain level of expertise to know what dials and levers to turn. So Every time you turn that dial, it's going to do exactly the same thing for the same photo. So it's very predictable outcome, which is what all traditional software is like. If instead you had an AI version of Photoshop, what it would it would probably work closer to things like Instagram filters, where there's all sorts of very clever things that people have kind of coded up, and you could kind of look through a whole bunch of different ways your photo sh- could look and then press a button and say, yeah, I like that one. Um, a truly AI version of it would be even smarter than that. It would kind of know for a particular kind of photo what a really good look would be, and it would automatically apply the right filter. And so it would have some knowledge (laughs) of what good looks like, and it would then do the right thing for any photo you give it to make it look good. And that's more what AI is like, and it's different from traditional software that just does what you tell it to. So I don't want to 
get into this too far because I realize we want to talk about AI marketing and not just AI, but how do you deal with the subjectivity of what good is in this instance? Yeah, it's completely up to the people designing the algorithms of what good is. And so for something like that photograph, you would probably take a number of experts who are really smart about about uh, touching up photographs, and you would have them all look at, you know, thousands and thousands of photographs and vote on which ones were better or worse on different types of touch-up. So you'd basically be trying to gather opinion that and reach a consensus of what things are the right answer. But there's other things that are easier, right? If we talk about um, content quality, like we were talking about earlier, it's very obvious that if your content is shared more in social, that's better. If it's linked to more by other pages on the web, that's better. If it leads to more conversions, that's better. And so you don't need any opinion, right? You actually have objective metrics to tell you when things are better. And so depending on the problem you have in AI, your outcome metrics, which is what these are, could be objective things that everybody agrees on. Or they could be a consensus of real experts who are giving human opinion. And either one of them is a valid way to tune your AI. That's really interesting. So you'd, you'd mentioned that, uh, I mean, a lot of this gets gets pretty deep on the technology side with the AI for marketers and that marketers don't really need to know and understand it all. I guess it's, it's kind of like a lot of race car drivers don't even, don't know a lot about cars. They just know how to drive. What part of it do marketers need to know? I mean, what are they, I guess... If there's some stage where you have to define what is good or, or what metrics that you want to optimize for, uh, I guess I'd say, what, at what level are marketers involved in the AI part of marketing? So I think the major way that marketers are involved is to identify what the problems are that they need solved. So, for example, understanding what content might, quote, go viral, might be a problem that some marketer might have, or understanding which content leads to higher conversions, or which emails get higher clicks, or which content ranks higher in search results. So if they can define what the problems are that they want solved, then you can let the technologists figure out how to solve them. One of the things that I've noticed in my career is that it's a pretty big advantage to understand both the technology side and the business side because there's it's still an art on the technology side to understand what kinds of uh, characteristics you're going to look at. In AI and machine learning particularly, they call this feature analysis. So the characteristics or the features are all the different things that you're going to look at in the input that you're going to try to categorize and classify uh, to allow the AI technique to find the patterns that seem to be successful. And so it's some someday all it'll probably be fairly well understood for certain types of domains what the features should be, right? We may discover that there are 2 million text features, and once you implement them all, nobody's thought of any more, and so you're done. And when you do all of those, then then you can let the machine just run wild and find which things are the right, the most successful patterns. Um, but we're not there yet. We're still at the point where you need expertise in marketing to be able to carefully choose what those features are that the machine should analyze. And so it's been a real help to me to be able to understand both the marketing problem and the technology side of this because I can kind of be in the middle and, and maybe do a better job of solving those problems faster than some other people. So you've talked about a little bit what it has, you know, the past of AI, and then you've talked a little bit about what it could potentially be capable of. What is it currently capable of right now? Like if I want to go out and find some AI software, uh, what what are the coolest features it can do for me right now as a marketer? So I think it's it's really at the beginning. When you ask where is it right now, most of the solutions that I see right now are custom solutions. They're consulting projects. They're clients that have specific problems that they want solved, and they will implement um, AI models to do them. Um, and that's that's mostly the state of the art right now. There are a few things that are commercial. So there are examples of AI that are commercially used. 
Some of them are ones you'd be very familiar with, things like Google's ranking algorithm or around the algorithm that Facebook decides of how it's going to spread posts among its users. So there are definite AI algorithms out there that affect marketing, but those are not typically things that can be used by marketers. One of the companies that I worked with, uh, Conversion, has an AI algorithm that does a really good job of sentiment analysis and relevancy for social media listening. And so that's an example of a commercial application that can apply AI right now. And so there are some commercial applications that are out there that are solving problems right now. But for the most part, what you see is AI that's being custom implemented, uh, mostly by large companies to try and solve problems that are really, really important to them. And then on the more kind of a general level, it's it's uh, being used in the back end by solutions that other people, I think you said Facebook, uh, Google, those kind of something behind the scenes that they're, that they're running. That's right. That's right. And I think what you're going to see is over the next few years, you're going to see that type of uh, implementation showing up in things that marketers can actually buy. So looking at things in, for example, marketing automation systems. My prediction will be that relatively soon you're going to start to see marketing automation systems that can use this kind of technology, for example, to help you do a better job of, of improving your emails. Um, so I think you're going to see this kind of technology start to show up in the basic platforms that people use. But I think it's going to take a little while for that to really become kind of a turnkey part of a commercial application. You know, the other day I was talking to a another guy in the kind of B2B email marketing space and he was talking about what his product is, is specific. You essentially attach their product to your emails as a way to actually produce revenue from your emails, which is kind of foreign to me. But you're essentially attaching advertisements into your emails and they cater what advertisements are best for the person at that time. And so I assume that there has to be some AI behind that because Essentially, what you're doing is, you know, if you wanted to attach, um, you know, if we wanted to attach uh, an email or an advertisement into someone else's email, then they're only going to attach our advertisements to the people that would be most suited to see that advertisement at the time that they would be most suited to see it. And I have no idea how they figure that out. So, Mike, would that be some sort of advanced targeting? Would that would that involve AI at all? It's hard to tell from the description. It certainly could involve AI, but there's also a lot of solutions out there that um, fall short of AI but are still really useful because they're basically big data applications. So a lot of the way that you see this start to play out is you start out with kind of a relatively simple solution. So if we take email marketing, if you look at something like MailChimp um, or Constant Contact or any of those email marketing platforms, they have all sorts of capabilities that help you send emails and help you track how well those emails are doing. And those are all the basic kind of software that we talked about before that, you know, you do do this when I tell you to type of software. And so they have all sorts of information in them that allow you to make better decisions as a person to tell it what to do. But that's how the software works. Now, the next step is actually integrating some kind of big data capability so that, for example, you'll see with some of these email programs that it won't just show you, hey, you had a you know 1% open rate. It'll show you, hey, we've pulled some data about your email list from you know some data aggregator, and we can tell you that you had a 0.6% open rate for companies that are smaller than 500 employees, but you had a 1.1% open rate for all the companies larger than that. And so it starts to use data to segment. It starts to use data to analyze, to provide insights. And so it adds a lot more data to what's going on so that you can then start to say, hey, I wonder if we should segment the email. So we're sending a different email to the small businesses than to the large businesses, because maybe we'd be able to raise our open rates that way. And so, so this 
solution that you're describing for me could just be using uh, data analytics and using correlation analysis and other types of things that, while they're sophisticated, they're still in the, the, the mode of, if you see this, then do this. And so they're, they're really kind of still do what I say rather than do what I want. And so an AI gets more to do what I want. And so what will happen over time is after you see that data start to roll in, you may see that, for example, the uh, an AI technique w- might be able to look at a number of emails and start to predict which ones it thinks will work better for different groups before you even send them out. Whereas the big data analysis will allow you to do, you know, A, B or multivariate testing to tell you which ones worked after you sent them out. And uh, an AI technique might be able to predict which ones will work better before you send them out. And so you can see the progression that we go through from first kind of simple programs that are good at emailing things to kind of big data-backed insights that help you make better decisions to AI programs that kind of predict what's going to happen so that you don't even have to make a decision. You let the computer make it for you. So would it be accurate to say with the AI, you kind of tell it, here's the result I want, and it will, the learning part seems to be the big difference. Um, It learns based on all the different feedback and whatnot, as opposed with analytics, stuff like that, you, you tell it the process and it runs that process. Um, based on the input you give instead of based on the output that, that you're asking for? That's absolutely correct. That's that's spot on the way it works. And in fact, there's kind of a joke in AI that says, if you can explain how it works, it's not AI. Nah. Right? So basically, it's like, if you, can, if you could walk through and step by step say, if this, then that, if it does this, then that, if this, then that, then it's not AI. Then it's kind of the old fashioned deterministic software that is that we use to solve all of our problems these days. But if you can't explain what it's doing, if you don't know how how it got there. If, as you say, you just asked for a certain outcome and it tried to keep working and optimizing until it got closer and closer to that outcome, that's what AI is. Huh. It makes me really wonder how they write the software for this. I don't think I want to know, but it just definitely makes me wonder how on earth they do write the software because everything I know about software is, you know, if this, then that. So then how would you yeah, even a, go about And it's interesting, Mike, <laughs> that's kind that? of your background. I mean, you'd mentioned before you come from a technology background. Most marketers we talk to don't come from a technology space. So I guess that's, I mean, naturally, that's why you're working with marketing and AI and mm-hmm. whatnot. But uh, yeah, I guess it does give you a unique, unique uh, perspective on the whole thing from most marketers. I'd like to go into kind of a, a little bit of a sidetrack here, but a big hot topic right now in B2B marketing in general is uh, account-based marketing. And it kind of... Uh, comes to mind for me that account-based marketing and this uh, the, the content marketing seem to be kind of on opposite poles of different types of marketing that you can do. I mean, the one is more advertising uh, style of marketing, and then you have um, you know account-based marketing, which is going after very specific individual um, people. Do you have a side on that uh, on that fight? Kind of, what are your thoughts around account-based marketing versus content marketing? So, I think what's what's happening uh, over time is that you can you can merge the two and you you can use AI and big data to do that. So we've had several clients where we have helped them with their content marketing and we've helped them in all the ways that we've been talking about of trying to understand what the characteristics are that lead to better outcomes and helping their teams create better content and all that kind of stuff. Um, we've used big data to help them analyze which segments things seem to be appealing to. And so if you think about kind of the classic way that marketers work, you're going to be targeting content to a step in the buyer journey. So it could be that they're in learn. It could be that they're in um, compare. It could be that they're in try or buy. You know, if we try and take like a cloud software example, those might be the steps. And so you're going to pick your content and target it to a step. So your your uh, white paper might be in learn, um, and uh, and so now you're trying to say, okay, the other thing you're going to do is you're going to target it to a persona. 
where and for B2B, a lot of the times what we do is we help clients just do like a couple of personas. We usually find that there are personas based on kind of the business people who care about what the solution does, how much it saves or or adds revenue or you know what the business benefits are. And then there are the people who are more of the experts in how it works. So, you know, they might be data analysts, they might be programmers, they might be all sorts of different potential specialists. But uh, um, so those are two different personas. And so your white paper might be targeted towards the people who want to know how it works. And your case study might be targeted to the people who want to know what it does. And so as you start to do those things and you start to gather which things are working better or worse for different personas, for different steps in the buyer journey, you can then start to say, okay, how does this apply to to account-based marketing? Well, let's think about a really simple way to use this information. So think about how uh, you could put this into your CRM system. So in your CRM system, if you align the stages of the sales cycle to your buyer journey, and you also start to identify the people who you are in the contacts for the different organizational lead targets that you have as certain personas, now you can start to, in the CRM system, pop up something that says, you should contact Jerry at uh, Diamond Corporation. He's in this, we know from him coming to our website that he's in this step of the buyer journey for this product. And here is the case study that we have found to be very effective in moving people forward in the buyer journey for that particular product for someone at that step with this with Jerry's persona. And so you very quickly can take all the big data that you're gathering on the content marketing side and start to apply it on the sales side in an account-based marketing approach. And what's going to happen over time is that as you get more and more data, You'll be able to go from just using these two aspects to using 10, 15, 20, maybe 100 different characteristics about the client to be able to target exactly the right content to them. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think that's how I envision account-based marketing and cannot do currently, but that's how I would really love to do account-based marketing. Yeah, I guess I wanted to pit account-based marketing against content marketing, but they really work together. I'm sure there's something else you can pit it against. It was a lot more fun. <laughs> I just want to see some marketing people fight just, it out over their You just want like techniques. a wrestling match in yeah, marketing, really. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think the real wrestling match that's going on is not really account-based marketing versus content marketing. I think it's the age-old wrestling match in B2B between marketing and sales. And I think that the, you know the big thing that has to happen for companies to go move to the next level in their effectiveness is for the marketing teams and the sales teams to really come together and be using the same data, using the same the same collateral material, figuring out how we judge marketers by how much we sell. And so by applying the same sales metrics to marketing, I think that's how you kind of bridge that divide. And you know the example I gave you of how to use content marketing in account-based marketing is just one example of helping the marketing team to leverage the investments already making in order to do a better job of driving actual sales. I wonder if that is a problem we could potentially put into AI and have them produce the solution for us. <laughs> Tell us how to work together. We, I, I think that that's actually what we're, what we're trying to do. I mean, um, the, you know, the example I gave you is one where having AI understand all of those features um, allows it to make recommendations on the content that no person would ever be able to do because there's just too many characteristics at an account level of each of the people that you're trying to reach. So you're right on. That's exactly what's going on right now. Well, when that comes out, please let me know because I want that. <laughs> I think everybody, yeah, let everybody know. Um, so it seems like you you think the um, or you're saying that the conflict between sales and marketing is kind of the biggest issue in in the B two B marketing area. Is there something in particular that you see as as a big bright spot? As a you know, basically, what's your favorite thing happening in B two B marketing right now? My favorite thing is is uh, what we've been talking about. It's that yeah, yeah. there's a, yeah, there's so much more data available, and it's so easy now to start to tie 
marketing to sales that you can start to analyze the marketing investment the same way you analyze investment in sales teams. And so we're working with clients, uh, B2B clients that have traditionally not invested in marketing because if you go back, you know, 15, 20 years, it didn't make any sense for B2B companies to invest in marketing. There was nothing they could do. Um, you know, marketing was which trade shows are we going to and who's going to p- produce the brochure this year, right? It was just, it was very low level work going on. And what you really needed was you needed product innovation and you needed uh, sales. And that's how B2B companies ran. And what's changing is that B2B companies are really waking up to understand that marketing actually in digital is what's really driving the pipeline. So even companies that would tell you, well, you know, we're really a referral business and people come to us because they get referred to us. So we don't really need digital because they're being referred to us anyway. Well, they're they're just flat out wrong. And the reason they're wrong is because if you think about what happens nowadays when someone refers you to a company, what's the very first thing you do? You Google them. Right. You go look at their website. You check them all out and you decide whether you're actually going to contact the company and follow up on that referral or not. And so, so it's critical that we figure out how to invest in marketing, um, in B2B. But the only way we're going to do that is by subjecting it to the same type of data that you subject sales to. So no one would be providing bonuses to salespeople and commissions to salespeople if they just thought they were just uh, order takers, right? They, if they thought that's the only value they had, they would find a way to not not pay them for that, right? But what they know is right. that in Customer most of these businesses, salespeople are critical to overcoming the objections through the process, and they're the ones getting the orders to happen. And so marketing's the same way. We have to realize that the top of the funnel is where marketing really shines, and that we have to be able to identify how valuable are those leads that are being passed to sales how what kind of investment are we making marketing that's filling that pipeline and as we're starting to do that these companies are starting to realize that the investment in marketing is every bit as critical as the investment in sales yeah yeah that's that's uh i guess the ability to track marketing results now is is just amazing is there any particular uh kind of not a whole tech stack but any particular tech stack pieces that, that you really like for that, you know, being able to track, uh, track different marketing activities? There really isn't. Uh, you know, when we go to clients, they're using all sorts of different technologies. And, it's, and for me, it's not really what technology you're using, it's how you're using it. So most of the time, the work that we do is to try to help clients to put the pieces together better. So they've got a CRM system already, and it doesn't matter which one you use. I think they're all really good. They all do a good job. They've got a marketing automation system already. They, they're they all good. They're, you know, I mean, they're probably one or two that might be better than others, but that's not really the important thing. The important thing is how do you get the marketing automation system to pass a lead to the CRM system and know that that's a high quality lead, know that all the information you had about that lead is being passed into the CRM system and the salesperson knows everything possible about that that lead in order to do the best job of closing possible and that you can actually start to score the leads and say which ones are the most important to get to the salespeople right away, which are the ones that are most urgent, which are the ones that are the highest um, value. And so it's really what you're doing with the tools rather than which tools they are. You can use any of these tools. I've I've worked with companies using just about anything you can think of, and it's not really which tool it is. It's have you done the integration to get those tools to work together so the data is being passed, you've got a scoreboard that tells you what's going on, and everybody is starting to manage to the numbers, right? It's really putting a data-driven culture in place that uses those tools to drive what every decision making uh, situation needs to be about. Yeah. And within sales and passing information off to sales, sometimes we um, don't want to overload the salespeople with too much uh, details. You know, we have access to a lot of uh, kind of more consumer data, even if it's pushed into a, to the B2B uh, sector. And personal so, data. Yeah. yeah. Personal data. At what point do you think it's too much? And 
can you convince me, give me a success story about how using all of this data really, really works. I, I would love to hear an example. Sure. So there really isn't some kind of best practice that you're looking toward that says, here's how much data you need. What you're really looking to do is to test how much data you need, right? So just like you would do A-B testing on web content, well, you can test whether providing more data to the salespeople actually raises your close rates or not. It's actually something you can you can test. And so that's what we try and do. We try and constantly test those things. And so there's all sorts of investments that get made that are based on these kinds of tests. So there's one success story that I can share. I can't name the client, but it's a, it's an e-commerce company. And uh, what they started out testing was, would it be helpful for us when someone called us on the phone, would it be helpful for us to know what they had been doing on the website before they called us? And so they started out doing something really simple. On the web page, on the website, they actually put a different phone number on every web page. And so when they called in based on the phone number, they knew what page they had been on. And so what they found was that this was helpful to them. It helped them raise conversion because they knew what product they were looking at. And so they could actually route the call to a person who was a specialist in that product. And that shortened the call, so it saved them some money, but it also raised conversion rates because the customer was getting their answer faster, getting a better answer. Then they asked themselves, well, if it was helpful to know what page they were on, would it be helpful to know all the different pages they had been on before they called us? And so they changed the system. And so they changed it so that the system, instead of having a different phone number on every web page, it actually generated a different phone number for every visitor coming to the site. And so every time somebody came to the site, it dynamically generated a phone number. And it used that phone number to track all of the sessions, all the pages that had been looked at. And as it did that, it would then pass that information along to the call center. And what they found out when they did that was that there was a point at which there was so many pages that were being shown to the call center operator that it actually slowed the call down. It was too hard for them to process all of that information. So what they started to do is they started to look to see whether it was valuable to only show like the last three or four pages rather than all the pages. And they finally found a sweet spot of the last four pages seemed to be valuable. They could actually show four pages on the call center rep's monitor, and the call center rep could see the pages and, and know what they were about. They were still trying to route the call to someone who was expert in the the last couple of products that they looked at. And what their theory is, is the reason that this too raised conversion rates was because if someone had looked at those pages already and was still looking, it might make sense not to always recommend one of those products as the solution to their problem. Maybe you should recommend something they had not seen already. And so then they started to imp implement a system that tried to suggest related products that they had not already seen. And that became the thing that they are using now. So now it looks at all the pages, but instead of showing all the pages to the call center rep, they actually have a process that looks at those pages, tries to anticipate what kinds of products, two or three products, are related to those products, but weren't pages that they looked at already. And they found that this raised the conversion rate even higher. And so this is an example of how you can start with trying to get some data, test it to see if it works, then ask yourself, what can we do on top of that? What can we do on top of that? And as you keep going, you're going to lurch into answers where you say, hey, we've, we've raised the conversion rate. Let's do more of that. That's a great example. Thanks. Uh, so I have one last question, kind of a random question, but if you had any problem at all that you can't currently solve that you would like AI to solve, what would it be? Well, I don't think I have any problems like that because, I mean, I'm I'm actually in the business of solving the problems using AI that people think you can't solve. 
So, you know, it might be a better question to ask people who are trying to get the solutions than me, because I'm constantly running into problems that people don't think they can solve, and then you can use AI to solve them. So there was one client where they had a problem that was quite difficult for them. They had a process where they had this approval process where they were trying to um, approve uh, web pages that were being updated. And it took them weeks to get all the different experts who had to look at the page. They had a person who was uh, from legal. They had someone from the branding police. They had people from SEO who wanted to make sure that the page was technically correct. And so they had all these people looking at the page all had to approve before it could go live. And they would constantly reject pages and and send them back and say, that's no good. You got to fix this. You got to fix that. It was this incredibly slow process. And they felt like they were really losing ground to competitors because they just couldn't change their content fast enough. And so we actually helped them redesign the process so that there was kind of a checklist of all the things that those experts were looking at. And we put those things actually out there so that the content owners could look and see all the things that that uh, needed to be done and check them off. And then we actually automated some of the processes so we could automatically check to see whether those things were uh, done properly or not. And for the things we couldn't check, we then re- referred only those things to the experts so that they could take a look. And what would happen is that over time, the checklists got better and better. But what also happened is that more and more of the pages that were sent were approved the first try. And the reason is because people started to get better at knowing what the the checklists really meant. And whenever you had an expert that said, hey, that isn't compliant, it was already something that the person who submitted the page thought was compliant. And so that became a learning opportunity. But it also became an opportunity to improve the checklist. How could we explain this better? How could we train people better? And so this is something that that over time we started to use AI to be able to take all of that collected data of when things were uh, divergent from the expert and the practitioner, and we started to use AI to try and simulate what the expert would say. So we tried to figure out all of the different features of the page and understand when we thought that that page really should be rejected or when it should be approved, or perhaps most importantly, where it was kind of a close call in the middle. And if it was a close call, then we referred it to the expert. And so we gradually improved that process so that they could publish in a couple of days rather than weeks. And that's something that started out just being like a traditional process improvement. But right at the end, because you've collected all this data, you can add some AI and solve a problem you never thought you could solve before. So I'm not sure I have a list of all the problems that I think AI um, could solve but doesn't solve yet, I think really that's limited only by your imagination. There are so many techniques out there. I think what's really limiting the impact of AI is that there aren't enough practitioners out there that really know how to use AI. And so they're very expensive right now. And so you only can really solve the biggest problems with them because it costs a lot to solve an AI problem. But for companies that have big problems that are worth a lot to solve, there's no shortage of, of problems to solve. There's there's probably a pretty big shortage of people who know how to solve them right now. So we still need more human intelligence, you're saying, to help out with the AI? <laughs> right now we do, but I think what you're going to see over time, you know, in five to ten years, is the kinds of things that those AI experts are doing today – itself will become automated. So one of the examples is that feature analysis that I talked about before. I Right now, feature analysis is definitely an art, and there are people who understand exactly how to do a really good job of that. My suspicion is that uh, over time, that's going to go away. You're already starting to see some of that with uh, AI algorithms. You know, you hear all sorts of people talking about deep learning and random forests and all sorts of algorithms. I think that very soon, you're going to get to the point where that's not something that a person has to do. That's something where they will just run the the uh, the model using every different algorithm there is, and then they'll pick the one that seems to do the best job, and it'll go on its merry way. So I think that right now, there's still a lot of manual work that goes into creating an AI model, but I think that's going to be something that over the next five to ten years, you're going to see a lot of automation come in there. So that will reduce the price. It'll make it less um, intensive for people to have to do, and that's going to allow us to apply it to many more problems. 
Well, it sounds really like this is just making clear and concise communication and problem solving not a thing of the future, which is really exciting. Thank you for giving us all of your insights. Yeah, so I want to throw out a couple um, couple places where, where you guys can find Mike here. We've got uh, your uh, Vimeo channel, vimeo.com, Mike uh, Moran. Um, and then uh, biznology.com, uh, recent book, uh, Outside In Marketing. And then you can follow Mike on uh, LinkedIn at LinkedIn slash IN slash Mike Moran. 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 <laughs> we can do that. And then uh, on uh, Twitter at uh, Mike Moran. Uh, Mike, anywhere else that you want to you wanna send people where they can follow you, find information on you, uh, that kind of stuff? Um, so uh, we publish the Biznology blog every day. It's B-I-Z-N-O-L-O-G-Y. Um, and uh, a couple of the companies that I referred to today are places you can go look at too. So Conversion.com, C-O-N-V-E-R-S-E-O-N.com, and Solosegment.com, S-O-L-O-S-E-G-M-E-N-T.com. Those are places where you can start to see some of those content marketing solutions, some of those AI-infused capabilities happening right now. Awesome. And that biznology.com blog, if, uh, if anybody out there hasn't checked that out, that is a great resource for, uh, for B2B marketers, always putting out good content there. Um, so thanks for that, Mike. And we will, of course, be putting links to all of this up on our show notes, uh, which you can find at elephanttest.com. Uh, thanks for listening. And thank you so much, Mike, for being here. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. A quick word from our sponsor. Effective marketing starts with good data. At Mountaintop Data, we are experts at developing and maintaining high-quality marketing lists. With tens of millions of highly accurate records and more data being added daily, we're sure to have the contacts you need to be in front of. Learn more at mountaintopdata.com. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Elephant Test. Check out the show notes at elephanttest.com. Thank you so much for listening from all of us here at The Elephant Test. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.